So Numbers chapters 11. Numbers 11. Okay, now, uh, when we come to a portion of Scripture, I think it's true, isn't it, that sometimes uh, we, we have to work reasonably hard sometimes uh, to see how that portion of scripture relates to our lives and how it corresponds to where we are as people living in the 21st century. Sometimes we have to work hard, we have to be prayerful, wrestling with God to see uh, the pertinence, the relevance of a text. If you want an example, you can quite happily just look to the previous chapter if you want to do that. Think about it for a moment. An ancient people making silver trumpets in a desert. Okay, sometimes we have to wrestle and pray and plead with God to see how that corresponds with our life. So sometimes it's quite difficult. We've got to put effort and rely on pleading with God. Other times the opposite is true, isn't it? Isn't it? Sometimes we come to a portion of Scripture and we almost laugh at how immediately pertinent that portion of scripture is to, to our lives. Isn't that right? I think we've all been in that situation before, have we? Where we come into church, we hear a portion of scripture read aloud in a church, and there is that knowing look to our neighbor or to our loved ones. Isn't that that little sort of knowing glance? Why? Because even the reading of the text speaks directly into what we're going through and into our present situation. Sometimes it's hard work. We're praying to see the relevance. Other times it's just immediately obvious. Well, get us ready. The theme before us this morning is grumbling and complaint. And so surely as at the second of those uh, realities is the case. Because friends, is it not true that we live in an age that is rife with complaining? Is that not true? Do we not do that? You just think about the um, soundtrack uh, to the festive season with maybe the people in your household and your family. What was the soundtrack? Or you think about the thread <laughs> that runs down your social media you know, your your Twitter or Facebook, what is it? It's complaining, isn't it? We are complaining. Other people are grumbling. We're complaining about lockdown. We're complaining about restrictions in our careers and our supervisors. We're complaining about our health. We're complaining about our finances. We're complaining about our politicians, right? We're complaining even about our church. Well, in this chapter of Numbers... What we've got, actually, are two connected portions of Scripture. Did you pick up on that? If not, look at your sheet. So you've got verse 1 to 3, and then you've got the much larger section from verse 4 to the end. Two connected, almost kind of almost interwoven portions of Scripture. And as we study this just now, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to see this theme of grumbling come to four. And yes, this is a theme that may see you, Christian friend, rebuked, chastised by your God this morning. But it is also a theme that this morning will bring us again to the foot of the cross to reckon once again that glorious truth. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ that is our only hope. 
So the first thing I want us to consider here is the substance of our grumbling. Okay, you got it? You with me? The substance of our grumbling. Okay, now, um, we mentioned uh, last week, last Sunday morning, didn't we, that one of the knock-on effects of aging is sometimes the fact that our memories aren't as good as they were in our youth, you know? And the memory can go a little bit... Even with that being true, hopefully you remember what we looked at last week, right? Do you? Um, we began a sermon series in the middle part of numbers, didn't we? And we began with this, at last, you know, the, at last, the departure, the triumphant departure of the people of God towards Canaan. Remember it? Like, do you remember the, the excitement amongst the people? Do you remember this? Do you remember how determined they were to obey God? Do you remember it all? Hopefully you do well. Maybe when we think about that euphoric departure, that setting off, maybe it's surprising to you how the next chapter begins. It's like, have a look at verse 1. See it, verse 1? So immediately we're told, there's all this excitement, we want to obey you, God, we're going to be detailed in our obedience. Then verse 1, immediately we see that that has been replaced by complaining. Immediately. There's better complaining spirit amongst the people of God. Now, you and I are going to come back to that little opening cameo section a little bit later on. For the time being, I think you and I have to try and wrestle with, well, what were they complaining about? Like, what was the content of their grumbling? And that takes us to a really important principle when we're reading portions of Scripture like this. Okay, stick with me, okay? Now, you know your Old Testament, I'm guessing that's the case for all of us and the people watching online. We know the Old Testament, so we know this. We know that there are loads and loads of parallel passages in the books of Exodus and Numbers. Everyone know that? If the kids don't know that, you should listen up. So many of the events that took place in the Exodus, you know when the people... Come out of Egypt and, and they go towards Sinai, but many of those events are mirrored in numbers as the people travel from Sinai up to Canaan. You got the idea? Parallel passages. Maybe you want some examples to you. Um, water being struck from the rock in both Exodus and Numbers and a focus in Miriam in both and a victory over Amalek. In, everyone got the idea, right? The parallel passages in Exodus and, and Numbers. Well, what we're supposed to do in Numbers, what we're supposed to do when we get to the paralleled, the parallel passage is we're supposed to zero in on where that differs from its counterpart in Exodus. We're supposed to think about, well, wait a minute, it's a parallel passage, but where does it diverge from? So let's do that. Let's just please spot the difference for a second, because I reckon everybody remembers what the people grumbled about in Exodus. Do you remember? Can you, Exodus 16? You don't have to look it up, just listen. The people grumbled about a lack of food. Didn't they? They come out of Egypt and they grumble about the scarcity of provisions. Not enough food. Is that what you've got here? It's not. Look at verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. What's the content, the, the substance of the complaint? They're crying out for meat. Do you see the difference? This is a complaint. This is grumbling not about a lack of food, but about a lack of variety of food. 
What you've got in Numbers chapters 11 are people moaning about the sheer monotony of life. You know, this manna, not again, day and day out manna. A lack of variety, that's the complaint. Now, let me turn it to you. What's your impulse? What do you think there? Like, you may be thinking, it's understandable. Like, maybe a little bit sympathetic. I mean, after all, it's probably, it's over a year that they've been eating manna. <laughs> so maybe you're thinking, I can understand it. That is not the position the Bible takes at all. And perhaps maybe you worked out what scripture does at this point. To show you how abhorrent this grumbling is. To show you how wicked and sinful it is. What the author does here is remind you how amazing manna was. How amazing and beautiful their existing provisions were. I'd ask you to look at it. So look to verse 7 first of all. What are you told about manna? You know, see, manna appeared like Delium, delium. What's that? That is a mineral that is only ever mentioned elsewhere in the Garden of Eden. Manna was paradisical to behold. Then go into verse 8. What's the context? The people are saying, oh no, not more manna. It's so boring. There's no variety. Verse 8 tells you it's versatile. Manna can be cooked in a variety of different ways. Uh, morning, Luke. Verse 8 goes on. We see it was delicious. It's like cakes baked with oil. Like donuts. Donuts on a daily basis here. Verse 9 tells you that the manna came down to the people. You've been reminded that it was a heavenly provision. Do you see what's going on here? The people are moaning, oh, not more than us, and they're grumbling about the monotony of things. And all the while, God has richly provided for these people. Oh, no, not more of this. Oh, God has provided the most beautiful and delicious nourishment we could ever imagine. Is it the case that already, as you consider that, there's rebuke and chastisement from God? You consider it. Think about for a moment the prevailing narrative of our society today. What's going on in our world today? Moaning, yes, but what? What do we hear but the mourning of the monotony of life in the 21st century, right? Because of COVID, because of this virus. What do you hear all the time? Mourning about the lack of variety, mourning about the monotony of lockdown life, mourning about the, the, the monotony of restrictions. Make sure you hear me correctly. There are real difficulties with isolation and with lockdown, and I am not minimizing those for a split second. But surely you, you hear the rebuke, you see the lesson. We as the people of God must not, ought not to stray over the line into undue complaining, unnecessary grumbling. After all, what do you see in Numbers 11? What does Numbers 11 remind you about, Christian friend? That God has provided for you in this same way, in a better way, in his son he has given you. (laughs) The very bread of life. As you journey through the wilderness today, as you travel through, let's say, the 
desert of your life, you've been nourished. God provides you on a daily basis with the most beautiful, abundant, available spiritual nourishment in the gospel. So as you come to church today and as you look back on how you've been this week, are you struggling with monotony? Are you the monotony of your life? Then as a Christian, be not in complaint, but turn this week back to Jesus Christ. Look to the bread of life and feast on the gospel as you journey on. The second thing we see here, we see the substance of their grumbling or our grumbling. Second thing, we see the side effect of their grumbling and our grumbling. The side effect. If you if you follow the news, and I know it'd be depressing to just now, but if you do follow the news, you, you'll have seen that there's a, last weeks and months, there's been a lot more written about what has become known as long covid Hasn't there? I think we all know, yeah, we all know um, what that means, I suppose, where previously medical experts had hoped or thought that this virus affected only the respiratory system. We're beginning to learn lots more about it, aren't we? Like COVID's affecting so much more neurological problems, fatigue, pain, long COVID. It's like underappreciated knock-on effects or symptoms caused by this virus. As we move on here, there's something akin to that here. The reality that our grumbling before God, it also has one particular, really often ignored, underappreciated side effect. Does everyone hear that? One, our grumbling before God has a knock-on side effect. Now, what is that? Well, first of all, look back to verse 4 and answer me this. You don't shout it out. (laughs) At least just think about it. Who grumbles to start with? What's the kernel, the cause of the grumbling? Do you see at the beginning of of verse 4, do you see who it is? The rabble. The rabble? It's the only time that's mentioned in the Bible. Um, Who are the rabble? Do you know what? I don't know who the rabble are. Um, there's lots of speculation. Some of the commentators say that it might have been a group of non-Israelites who are traveling uh, with this camp up towards Canaan. That's the, the rabble, maybe. But there's nothing in the text to suggest that that's the, the case. And I'm not so sure it matters. Like I, I think what is much more important is to notice what happens next. So you look at verse 10. Look at this. The rabble begin to complain. Then, verse 10, what we told that, that, that then grumbling is heard throughout the clans. There's an next step. Then you, you read on. In verse 10, this was the rabble, then it's throughout the clans. Then every member of the people of Israel is at the door of their tent complaining. The rabble, then throughout the clans, then everyone. Do you see the problem? Does everybody see the knock-on effect? Can I put it into terms that everyone in the room is going to understand and everyone watching online is going to understand? Listen, somebody else has said before, grumbling is like an infectious disease. I think we can probably appreciate that illustration. Grumbling, you're complaining, my complaining, 
is contagious. It spreads. It is infectious. And you, Christian, you know that that's true. Is that right? The grumbling and complaining in your home. The grumbling and complaining at work. You hear somebody complaining at church about another person, about other circumstances. What happens next? You hear that. You catch it, don't you? You become infected. You hear that grumbling. And suddenly what happens, it seeps into you and it colors your perception. It colors the way that you view that person, that circumstances. And then you spread the virus to the next person. You begin to complain yourselves. Well, in this time of COVID-19, where we're all willing to use hand sanitizer, and most of us are willing to socially distance, can we not begin as Christians to take precautions against this dangerous spiritual disease that we've got here? So I want to lay it out as clearly as I possibly can to to us as a church. We need to get better at clamping down on complaining. We need to get better at clamping down on grumbling. What do I mean by that? I actually do mean in other people. You know, when, when we hear the people who we trust and love around us, you know, our, our spouse, our children, a close Christian friend, and we hear them going off on one, you know, like undue grumbling and massive complaining, then as Christians, we actually do need to get better at going to that person, speaking to them about it. You know, nipping it in the bud. That's true, of course. But much, much more than that, we need to get better at clamping down on grumbling here. In ourselves. In our own life. So I want to suggest to you that even this week, that you seek to open your life up to greater scrutiny. Do you see the idea? That you identify a trusted Christian in your life. Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe it's a Christian friend. But you go to them and ask them for help. You open your life up to scrutiny and you ask that person to point out to you when you stray over that line and you begin to unduly complain and to unduly grumble. Why? Why do something like that? All to avoid this horrific virus, this disease of grumbling, all to avoid it spreading. So we see the substance to our grumbling. We see the side effect, it spreads. And thirdly, we see the seriousness of our grumbling, the seriousness of our grumbling, because I don't know, but I do think the chances are that there is a significant objection that some people might have uh, to Numbers chapters 11. So it's people in here might have this objection. And I think certainly people maybe tuning in at home are going to have this objection. And it's this. Are we not getting this a little bit out of proportion? I'll twist it slightly. Could the objection be, is God in Numbers 11 not getting things a little bit out of proportion? Do you see? This is complaining. (laughs) It is not murder. It is not theft. It is not storming a Capitol building 
or something like that. This is a group of people, and they're having a grumble about the type of food that they've got. Like in this chapter, is this not a little bit out of proportion? Is I mean, what, like, what, what is the deal? Like, what is all the fuss about, really? Yeah, do you see? Well, before we answer that, I think we do have to establish that grumbling is incredibly serious to God. It is serious to God. So do this with me, everyone, would you please? If you look at your sheet, look at the beginning and then the end of this chapter. Let's do it like that. So look at the beginning and the end. Look to verse 1. So just scan verse 1 very quickly. Do you see what happens? So God hears the people's complaining. That already stops me short, doesn't it? God hears the complaining and uh, next bit, it angers him. So God is genuinely angry with his people's complaining. Now, you've looked at the beginning. Now look right to the end, to verse 31, and to the nature of the punishment that God meets out here. Do you see? So it centers around quail. We all know what quail are, kids. Do you know what quail are? Quail? Yeah, come on. No? No? Okay. I don't know what these parents are teaching their children these days. Quail are little birds, like partridges, and they're birds that migrated. This time of year, they migrated sort of north from Africa, right over the Sinai Peninsula. But do you see what God does? He causes, let's put a figure on it, millions of them to fall, not on the camp, but around the camp. The details, when you look at it, are incredible. So there's quail everywhere. They're three foot deep in some parts, and they are a day's journey on either side of the camp. It's almost as like God is saying, you wanted meat, right? I'm going to, you wanted meat, I'm going to give you meat. Then what happens? They put it to their mouth, and before they even ingest it, before they even eat this properly, the meat turns. This plague comes down, and it falls over the camp. This is a serious punishment, isn't it? I mean, surely the text shows us that God takes our sin of grumbling incredibly seriously. Then we go back to that question, but why? What is all the fuss about here? Is it not out of proportion? Well, this is a big chapter, isn't it? And it's a really detailed chapter, and it's a really colourful chapter of Scripture. And so I think we're forgiven if we missed it. I think it's understandable if we missed it. But in this portion of Scripture, right in the middle of the portion of Scripture, God tells you the nature of the problem. He tells you the heart of the problem. He answers your objection in verse 20. Do you see? He says, this, this is to be meted out, this, 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 this punishment. Why? Because grumbling is, in effect, a rejection of the Almighty God. Complaining is, in essence, a rejection of God. And maybe, if you're with me and thoughtful, maybe you see that, yes, that is true, that is exactly right. You think about what God has done. For these people. I mean, God has committed to these people. He's plucked them, taken them to himself. God's promised to care for these people, hasn't he? God has promised to orchestrate all things with the good of these people. God's promised to take these people to the promised land. So do you see what it is when they grumble? Can I turn it and say, 
Do you see what you are doing when you grumble and complain? It is an expression of your rebellion against the goodness, the purposes, the providence of God, isn't it? When we complain, it is a demonstration of our lack of faith, our lack of trust, our rejection of Almighty God. So because of that, don't we need to hear triple down on our application here, don't we? Given the severity of this, I was going to say we need to pray. But I'll change it to say we need to pray as a church about this very specific issue that we've got in front of us this morning. Okay, I'll ask you a question. Think about it honestly. When was the last time in prayer that you very seriously brought to God the problem of your complaining spirit? When was the last time you really, really pleaded with God about your grumbling? Like I think if we surveyed the room just now, surveyed the people watching on, would the answer be? I think we'd get two answers, right? A lot of us would say, it's been a long time since I, 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 I really genuinely took that to God. The other answer would be, I have never in my life done that. Well, given the severity of this rejection of God, I mean, is this not something that we need to take into our lives? Do we not first need to be a people who from the day forth are regular in confessing, are grumbling to God? You know, acknowledging to God, I've got a spirit of grumbling and complaining, confessing it, acknowledging it. But then doing more, asking God to help, help me, oh God, to, to change and to put this to death. Which what are you seeing in Numbers 11? You're seeing that when we grumble unduly, it is to the displeasure of your God, it displeases God to hear his people grumble, moan, and complain. So we've seen the substance, we've seen the side effects, we've seen the seriousness, and then we close with the salvation from our uh, grumbling, the salvation uh, from our grumbling. I guess uh, you could argue that some of what has just been said is pretty heavy uh, and serious um, material, isn't it? This idea of rejecting God. Actually, I think it's only here that we deal with what is the most solemn element of all. Oh, I'd love you to hear it. Will you stick with me for this? Because think about it. We've just said that we are as guilty as grumbling as these people, right? Come on, aren't we? Can you see something of your sin? We we complain before God rejecting, rebelling against God's purpose. We are as guilty as they are. Do you not see the solemn thing? They face judgment. How is it? How is it? that we can be stopped from facing the same. You know, these people face judgment for the grumbling, the rejection, and turning against God and complaining against God. They face a, a plague. Well, 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 why? How can we possibly avoid this for our own sin? 
Well, what, what I want you to notice and focus on is what the text does, not with the people, but what the text does with the figure of Moses himself. Okay, will you do that? So in your mind's eye, you can rid yourself of the people for a second. You've got Moses, just you and Moses. Okay, just for a second. Now, what did I say a moment ago? Right at the start, actually, I said that there was two sections of Scripture, didn't I? This little short cameo section and then the longer portion of Scripture. I need you to appreciate that actually what the Bible is doing is contrasting those portions of Scripture to make a point about Moses. Everyone follow it? Did you follow it? I'll say it again. The Bible's contrasting, setting those two sections of Scripture, the wee one, one to three, and then four at the end, setting them in opposition to make to you a point about Moses, his role and Moses' work. Okay? So look at the first section with me again from verse one. What happens? You've picked up on it by now, right? The people complain. God is angered. Then the fire Imagine this, the fire begins to encroach on the camp, maybe taking out some of the exterior vegetation, something like that. The fires are coming. And then all of a sudden, what happens is that the fires are turned away. They're sort of propitiated. They're, they're turned away. Why? Do you see in verse 2? Because Moses gets up and he acts as the people's mediator. Did you see the idea? The fires are coming in. Moses stands before God. Moses prays to God on behalf of the people. And the fires are turned away. Right, you've all got it, that section. One, then think about the bigger section. You're supposed to notice a lot of correspondence. Did you notice it? So the people moan again. Don't they? God is angered again. Now, the plague begins, doesn't it? It's a different judgment, but it's judgment on the less. This time, though, do you notice the difference? The plague, the judgment, doesn't stop. This time at the end, the, the, the judgment comes over all of the people, and you see why, don't you? Because this time... Moses does not act as their mediator. This time, Moses does not get up and stand and pray for the people before Almighty God. Look at it in verse 10. Look at the difference in his attitude. Yes, God is going to be merciful. Yes, we'll give him the elders and the spirit-filled guys. But look at this. Instead of praying, he moans. He catches the sin of grumbling and I don't want to deal with these people. I don't want to mediate for these people. He gets to the stage here. Do you notice it? When he actually says to God, I would rather die than intercede for them. I would rather die than act as their mediator. Friends, do you see the message of this text is of infinite and eternal importance that the only way that we can avoid the judgment due our sin is if a suitable and willing mediator can be found for us before the almighty eternal and holy God and at that moment surely as your breath is taken with gratitude what do you know to be true that God himself and his kindness, his grace, he's provided, he himself 
has provided the mediator that we need in Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus done? He has lived your wilderness experience for you. He's done it. He's gone and he's faced the evil one and he's resisted the temptation to grumble. Resisted the temptation to complain and to rebel and to reject. And then what has Christ done? It only gets better. He goes to the cross and there at Calvary, he soaks up all of the punishment that is due your wicked complaining and all of your grumbling and all the wrath and the punishment. He faces the full force of the fires of God's wrath that you're complaining. He takes it all, all that fire. He eats up all the meat, the plague. He takes the plague. He takes it all for the, for the sin of grumbling, complaining, rejecting, rebelling against God. He does it all. And where does it leave us now as church? We now in him, we have a prophet greater than Moses. Where are we now? Now we have a suitable mediator, an eternally willing mediator. We as a church have one who is ever, baby, ever lives to intercede for you and for me. Where does it leave us? But with a saviour from sin, we have a saviour in Jesus Christ. So you remember how we begun this sermon? We said that sometimes, sometimes, a sermon seems incredibly pertinent to our lives at this moment. So if you are not a Christian in here or listening on, is that the case for you? That it seems so relevant that you see that you're a complainer. But now that you see, wait, this is an offense to Almighty God. I am a sinner before God. If it seems pertinent, oh, please, please come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You must surely understand that he alone can save you from the judgment that your sin deserves. He alone can save you. And he stands ready to work on your behalf. The grace of that is amazing, isn't it? Jesus Christ stands ready to intercede for you before a thrice holy God. Friends, see that. Run to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Today, this hour, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, your work is precious and beautiful in our sight. Uh, We hear of the spectacular appearance of manna. It is nothing when we consider what you have done in the gospel. The bread of life is good in our seeing, good in our sight. We thank you that through Jesus' work, indeed the hope of Numbers 11 has been fulfilled. This longing, oh, for a day where the Spirit would be poured out in all people. And we see that in the church it is the case. Lord God, we thank you that you are a willing, suitable mediator. We thank you that you propitiate God's 
anger. You turn it away from us by your own life, death, sacrifice, and resurrection. Lord, we pray, gather people to yourself. Lord, we pray, make Christians, make people believe at this hour. For your sake, we pray. Amen.